Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast for comedians of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Do the show a favor and like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at There It Is Pod and subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. You know, everything you have ever heard about New York comedy is true, especially when people are talking about a surprise guest that showed up at a stand-up show. That's exactly what happened to me and Justina last night. We went to go see episode two guest, Corey Cavan's show, Great Times with Corey and Kevin, and a couple of guests came, Mike Berbiglia and Jim Gaffigan. The roof was blown off when they walked out. It was really exciting. Everyone on the show was great. Top-notch New York talent. It was really great to see everybody. And, you know, gosh, Jim Gaffigan is so experienced. He's been around so long. It was really great to be in the room and watch him perform and how he uses a stage and his rhythm. It was really, really not only great to see and fun and entertaining, but also very educational. The show was in support of the Nomi Network, and that network is an organization to stop human trafficking. A really good cause. You can find ways to support the cause at nominetwork.org. That's N-O-M-I network.org. Today's guest is Splitsider founder Adam Frucci. We have a really great talk about his starting that comedy website and about his time performing comedy at the UCB Theater here in New York City. Well, without further ado, let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Adam Frucci. You started out in comedy in New York, or did you were you doing comedy before you moved to um, New York? Yeah, I mean, I started in college, I guess. Um, Where'd you go? I, I went to Syracuse, and oh, okay. uh, the summer before my senior year, I took I did an internship at The Daily Show, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who worked there were into UCB and would go. You know, we would go after work on Tuesdays to Herald Night together, and uh, oh, fun. And that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And then when I went back to school for my senior year, I just kind of cold auditioned for the the school improv team and made it on, and kind of got hooked from there. So then when oh, I graduated okay. in the spring, I moved right to New York and kind of dove right into UCB and never looked back. And when was that? Uh, that was '05. That's when I okay. graduated, moved to New York. Okay, cool. So you started going the curriculum at UCB. Did you try any other theaters, or did you try your hand at stand-up or anything else? Uh, no, I never never tried stand-up. I basically just stuck with, with UCB mm-hmm. kind of straight through. I just kind of liked it immediately. didn't really feel much uh, desire to dabble around. And honestly, so. you got in at, a, at such a good time. Um, I mean, the theater was, what, around six years old at that point? Yeah, no, it was the perfect time to get in. It was great. It's so much bigger now and so much... I don't know if I would have broken through and gotten onto a team if I was doing it now with, with so many more people all You're going right. for it. I mean, it's, it's incredibly uh, it's incredibly competitive just to get in the curriculum there. Not yeah. that you don't eventually get in. It just takes a little more time to get in now. And then, of course, it's super competitive just to get on a team. Yeah, totally. Right. 
So you started one of the uh, popular groups there. There are several popular groups there, but you started Airwolf. Are you in Airwolf? I am, yeah. Um, I was on a, a team called Bastion on Herald Knight for mm-hmm. four and a half years. I think we're still the longest running Herald team oh, cool. that's ever been at the theater. It was just, uh, which was really great. I, I kind of have a charmed experience because I had that team for like four and a half years. And mm-hmm. then after that team broke up, Less than six months later, I was on a, put on this another Herald team called Badman, which mm-hmm. eventually turned into Airwolf, and and so I've been on this team for five and a half years now. So I've been at the theater for over ten years, and the majority of the time is split across just two teams, which is right. very nice. Not That's not cool. jumping around a lot. What is the form that Airwolf is doing? Um, we do the, the name of our show is Let's Go Back to Your Place, uh, and so in the first half, we interview somebody from the audience about. A weird living situation they've had you know roommate stories things landlord nightmares things like that uh-huh. uh and we just do a montage off that and then the second half we do i don't know what the technical term delicate flower maybe um <laughs> it's basically like a mono scene with cutaways so we do mm-hmm. one main scene but then we're able to cut away from that scene to go back in time to get context to just kind of like riff on funny characters that come in but then we always go back to this one scene that's kind of the backbone of the entire set Oh, very cool style. I met uh, the year before. No, it was sometime before. Is that NCCAS uh, F? Rather, uh, I met uh, Ben and um, Eddie, who are on that team, mm-hmm. and uh, they were phenomenal. But that's when I first heard of Airwolf, and they weren't obviously doing an Airwolf show because it was just the two of them. But uh, that's when I first heard about them. They're they're great. Oh yeah, they're the best. I love them. They're totally crazy, and I mean, that's the best <laughs> way. I mean, that's yeah. what you want. Yeah, that's they're what maniac. you want in comedy or mania. Yeah, it's like they are. Uh, yeah, they. Yeah, I love them too. Um, you were spending your time performing at UCB, and uh, what were some of the things that you were learning about improv and about comedy through that process? What were some things that just really struck you over the head and amazed you about it and kept you staying with it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I just really attached to it as, as a creative outlet you know it's mm-hmm. this thing where i could go i didn't i could just show up and do something creative with a group of people it was and it was just felt very liberating to to learn how to you know trust your gut and to not feel like you have to have all sorts of premises written out and jokes written out and like sit down like all right i've got to be funny i've always found comedy writing to be harder than improv because it's hard for me to sit down at a desk and look at it and Mm. be like all right jokes joke time but on stage when you're it almost feels like less pressure because you're like all right well with these other people we're building something together and i can just react in the moment and Mm -hmm. trust my gut that funny things will happen i find that to be like a really satisfying thing how did the ucb form and, and curriculum help you grow and get better at that i mean honestly just by being there a lot especially in the first few years i was there you know i was taking classes all the time i was going to shows multiple nights nights a week and just kind of like really being in the scene and just doing a lot of improv just made you know it's just the kind of the classic thing where the more you do it the more comfortable you get the less you're thinking about it and the more fun you're having it just takes a lot of time to get to that place right the performances i've seen like the really good performers who i've uh who have uh, had the pleasure of seeing they are they it's it's like it's written right like the really great improvisers they say a line and it's such a well-crafted funny statement or joke and uh that's the thing i'm trying to get at because i will try to react 
but then it's it's not really a well-crafted joke or re- right. well-crafted thought. Um, so I don't know how people are doing it. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a lot of it's just uh, having the mindset where you're not trying to make jokes, you know, where you're just trying to react honestly and, and create a character mm-hmm. that is unusual and funny. And then if you're, if you're kind of being honest and grounded with that character and reacting honestly to your, your scene partners, like you got to trust that the things will be funny even without you, like, you know, actively being like, all right, here's a setup. And then I hope my teammate nails right. the punchline that I have in mind. Oh, right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, I feel like, and I'm in a curriculum right now and they're saying, you know, my, my instructors tell me the same thing that you're saying. And I totally agree. And I've taken improv for a few years now. So it's what was ingrained in me back home, but I see some of these great performers and I'm still like, okay, I know they're doing the same thing that I'm trying to do, which is just reacting and staying grounded. Yeah. But why are they doing it so much better? <laughs> <laughs> like, how are they coming up? Because uh, I, I did a mixer the other night, like a little jam. And I went up there and I was like, okay, I'm just going to react naturally to what makes sense for me to react to in this moment. And, you know, I get off stage and I'm like, okay, that was fine. Uh, it wasn't great. Then someone who's more experienced, they, I can see that they're doing the same thing. But it's just so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, I, don't know I think how people so, especially do it. like a mixer or a jam that's that's hard like, like I said I'm super spoiled I play with the same group of people every week and I've been playing with them for over five years so right. having that comfort level with your teammates makes a huge huge difference like I do jams and stuff like when we've you know traveled to Charleston Improv Fest and stuff and, and done like the festival jams there it's like it's very different and it throws me on my heels and I feel less comfortable and I'm like oh man I'm out of my element now because I'm definitely yeah. you know when you get into that comfort zone with people that you just trust implicitly and you kind of know how they'll react to things that you're doing without how you know like you're like I know this is what Ben's gonna do when I do this right basically always does and it takes so much pressure off and it makes it it makes all of us look better because it makes it look more like magical when it's really just comfort and how intimate we've become on stage together how how we just trust and know each other so well that it's like half the work fair point that's a fair point uh, speaking of the charleston comedy festival that's where we met yeah yeah it's true we, we, yeah, we went there year. for many years it's a wonderful wonderful festival great town we always love yeah. going yeah, it's such a fun. It is a great town. I, it's kind of like a, a very. I, I was just there over the holidays, and I there's a certain hustle and bustle about it that is. Uh, it's like the southern version of like uh, I don't know Brooklyn Heights or something like yeah. that. Like it's it's uh, it's a nice place. Oh, no, it's really, wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a it is a great town. festival. That uh, they've got 99 a good comedy. Yeah, Theater Ninety Nine is awesome. It's yeah. A great, great spot they have there yeah and they do have a great comedy scene there um, yeah it's kind of built all around theater 99 it's cool they kind of like built that scene from scratch it seems yeah yeah uh, and it's uh it's been going strong and i think they started around the same time ucb started oh yeah if, if i'm remembering uh what i was Not told sure. correctly it seems like it, it was starting like maybe a year after yeah um or something or something along those lines so you, you founded split cider and yeah. when did you do that? Uh, end of 2009. When I, as soon as I saw it, I was immediately hooked. I mean, I was just... <laughs> Thank you. And I still, from the first year to just the other day, if I get on Split Cider, I see one article and it piques my interest and I 
see another article just below that, and I'm like, oh, I want to read that too. So let me just <laughs> open that in the browser, and, uh, and then I'm seeing another article, and I just end up falling into the website. Awesome. Just, Thank yeah, you. it's it's always it's had that. Hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's always had that uh, experience for me. But you started that, and what better place to start a comedy website than New York City, especially totally. here at UCB? So what made you decide to uh, create that? Uh, well, I was working at Gawker. I was an editor at their gadget blog, Gizmodo, for a few years. Uh, basically, soon after I moved to the city, within the first year I was there, I had this job. And so I was kind of learning the publishing world and learning how to blog and, and how it all worked and getting pretty comfortable with with how it works. Mm -hmm. And in the same time, I was starting UCB and going through the UCB. So I was spending you know, my days doing the blog stuff and at night I would be doing comedy stuff. And there wasn't really a comedy site that I loved that I wanted to read every day. Uh, the, a lot of them felt too local or too stand-up focused, too insular. And I wanted to kind of make the site that I wished existed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really care about gadgets. I was, I was pretty happy to get out of Gawker. Uh, and it just kind of was a serendipitous thing where I was like, well, uh, I kind of know how to do this job just from my, my work experience. And I also have this connection to the comedy scene and I know a ton of people just through what I'm doing every night with my, you know, as a hobby. Uh, I figured I'd just combine the two, you know, just figure out how to make, make the thing I love doing at night, at least a little closer to what I did to pay the bills during the day. Right. That's great. So you had to have thought about and, and walk me through it, but I imagine you had to have thought like, well, I want a comedy website that talks about what's coming out and, talks to people about what they are creating and then also delves a little deeper into the work that's out there because pretty instantly it seems like you had those different aspects on your website uh, but what really was going through your mind as you were trying to put together what it is you wanted the site to be um well my goal was to make it so it would be as interesting to like a ucb nerd in new york city who is going to shows five <laughs> nights a week to, as to like you know a high school kid in kansas city who just discovered mr show you know right. i didn't want there to be this barrier to entry where you felt like you had to be in chicago new york or la and going to shows every night to really understand what we were talking about because mm -hmm. that is such a small part it's very easy when you're in the scene in new york or la to just like think that it is comedy and it is mm -hmm. the world of comedy it's like actually 99.9 percent .9 of people see comedy is the stuff they see on tv and the podcasts i listen to and the movies that are coming out so mm -hmm. I wanted to really make it as as non-local as possible while still mm -hmm. touching on the stuff that made make local scenes really cool and vital and important. So write yeah. about those in a way that you didn't have to be a part of them to care or get it. Right. Well, you nailed it. How Thanks, did man. how did you process that to make sure that it was not so in the New York comedy scene bubble that other people could relate to it? Uh, I guess I just trusted my gut, you know, at least mm -hmm. for the first 18 months of the site uh, it was just me running it by myself so you know every single thing that was being published was either written by me or edited directly by me so uh you know i just was like well does this just feel like a splitsider story to me mm -hmm. and that, that was kind of my rubric what were some of the challenges you had in that early stage when it was just you Oh, you know, just not making much money and not mm -hmm. having much time. You know, it's a, doing a site by yourself is a lot of work because, oh, yeah. you know, you have to be on top of the news feeds. You're like reading news all day and you have mm -hmm. to be on top of, you know, the the trades and, and et cetera and Twitter. But you also have to be 
doing the work of an editor, which is finding new writers, working with writers, actually trying to cut out two hours so you can edit a feature. Mm-hmm. And those two things don't go that well together. Like you can make it work, but it's it's yeah. hard. And, it, you know, when it's just you, you're never not working. You know, it's like right. emails come in and there's nobody else who's going to answer them. If you have a sick day, there's nobody else who's going to run the site. So it just becomes a little overwhelming. Yeah, I bet. When, about how long into having created the website, were you able to start hiring a staff so other people could answer emails? Um, I hired Hallie Kiefer as a part-time news writer maybe a year and a half in, and she just did news stuff in the morning, and that was just amazing. Yeah, uh, I remember when she got on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's I awesome. That name. I love yeah, her. Yeah, she is, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, she's a stand-up in the city, super funny. Um and she was just, it was, she was so good immediately and it just took so much pressure off and, and that was it. Mm-hmm. That was a big thing. Yeah. And that, it did seem to grow without changing the dynamic of what Split Cider was about and what it was contributing to the comedy scene, which I think is a testament to having a clear vision. And uh, how did you spread that vision to these new people you were hiring? Uh, well, I think they got it, uh, you know. Anybody I hired was uh, had been reading the site and for the most part had been contributing as a feature writer or a columnist. So um, I'm not sure if Hallie started as a columnist. She might have just started as a news writer. But everybody else who I hired after she left were longtime writers for the site, freelancers, who clearly I knew got it just right. based on their pitches, the work that they were already doing. So there wasn't much teaching that had to be done, Yeah, which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then it, it really shows just how not only well you were at just picking the right people, but also th- putting the work out there to begin with that they were able to take it in and, and get it. I mean, I got pretty lucky with some of the, the folks mm-hmm. that I had. You know, Hallie Cantor, who went on to win an Emmy writing for Amy Schumer and is a right. Shouts and Murmurs writer for The New Yorker now, and Jesse David Fox, who's now the comedy editor for New York Magazine and run, you know, and, and does Fulcher. It's like, you're great great people super yeah. talented people so yeah. i got very fortunate having them on board you know bradford evans who was a, a super long-term writer of mine and then wrote uh was doing stuff with funny or die just did tween fest for for i think go 90 and it's like you know people who are who are clearly very talented and and it's been awesome to work with them yeah i remember all those names <laughs> <laughs> i remember seeing all those names yeah so I, I don't know i guess i'm more of a nerd about split cider than i realize i'm a true comedy nerd <laughs> Hey, you're our bread and butter, man. Yeah. Target, target audience is comedy news. <laughs> yeah. So when you start really delving into things, it's obviously uh, being here, you have a lot of access to great comedians that you want to talk to. You can you know, really get in, in in a special way. But also you all delve into more discussion topics. And that's gotten increasingly hard to do, I feel, in comedy because – you get so many, so much on online. People just get so angry, and there's such mm-hmm. vitriol in the back and forth. But that's something you all have avoided. Yeah, I mean, we got rid of comments a few years ago, and that was a decision that I'm very, very happy with. You know, just, honestly, yeah, I'd, it was pretty. I mean, it's it a wasteland a, on the internet. Whenever you, yeah. when you go to the comedy set, it was it's very. Just, it was either no comments or 
it was never like all that thriving discussion wise. And it just exactly. felt like, I don't know why I feel obligated to give up this valuable real estate on my website to mm-hmm. just whoever wants to drive by and, and leave a comment. It's like, we have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter account. If you want to like leave feedback or have a discussion, those are two perfect places for it. It doesn't have to yeah, live on, on the website. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Facebook is where that stuff is for. And yeah, you especially know, it, with a, a smaller site, you mm-hmm. just don't have the manpower, like a big site like the times it's full time comment moderators. Right. And it's just like, I was already pulled in so many directions. The last thing I felt like doing was moderating comments oh, and like gosh, banning yeah. people from the comment <laughs> section. I was just like, this is a pain in the ass. And I don't think brings a single iota of value to anybody. So right. Time How- to kill it. From what perspective do you all try to come from when having those deeper discussions and and so so that you can avoid just getting into the fray that that really brings down good discussion and discourse? Uh, How do you mean? I'm not sure I understand. Where I'm getting at is so many people want to share a thought. There are tons of times where some blog, some random person's blog goes viral because they were being kind of unnecessarily punchy. That was kind of like their point of their their piece. Uh, And they don't end up having good discourse. And it ends up Mm -hmm. being this thing that blows up in the comedy community and all comics are talking about it on their Facebook. But they're just not good discussions on the onset. Yeah. Uh, You all were able to do that on the onset. I I just have never seen uh, something that is just trying to punch people or... or, or No, we definitely try to be relatively positive. And I mean, a lot of the stuff that like gets talked about that we avoid is like joke theft accusations uh, mm-hmm. against famous comedians. I'm generally a joke theft skeptic. I think that most joke theft accusations are bullshit and come from a pretty bad and selfish place. And mm-hmm. it almost, it's like, yeah, it's happened. Like Joe Rogan, Carlos Mencia, sure. Right. But it's also a lot of the times I think it's either parallel thinking happens all the time. All the time. I think just people hearing stuff and not realizing they heard it. And it's just, it happens if you're in the comedy world and it, you know, it's not a malicious thing. And it's right. also like not actually hurting any, unless you're stealing some sketch that was on YouTube with 300 views and putting it on SNL, mm-hmm. like accidentally, uh, having a joke that's similar to a joke you heard three years ago, it's like, are you are you taking money out of that other <laughs> comic's pocket? Like, are you taking food out of their mouths? Like, it yeah. usually feels like it comes from a place of insecurity from the accuser's part, and just like, what? How much value do you think each particular joke you've written has? Right. Like, yeah. Any one like, joke. Right. And I think accusing people online. If you're writing <laughs> you have written new, material. new material, you'll be better <laughs> off for it. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, in some cases, like I, I think Pat Oswalt was saying that before he ever had anyone steal jokes, he was just kind of like, uh, go write new jokes. You know, yeah. like, what's the big That's deal? And then somebody did a set somewhere that was like entirely his jokes. And he was saying that that felt weird. Yeah, well, that's different. Um, but that's, that's like different. If you're intentionally stealing somebody's whole set, it's like, yeah, fuck off, don't do that. But if you, <laughs> absolutely, act, if you're like, but that's not the joke stuff the, that's yeah. gone around. It's just ridiculous. We're just like, man, Agreed. she talks about the same subject matter that Dave Attell did a few years ago. <laughs> it's like what getting drunk and having sex. It's like it's something Dave that Attell, only Dave Attell can talk about. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, no, I and that's and exactly it is the 
uh, Pat Oswalt thing, that could be a reasonable discussion to have. But that's not the discussion people are having. Yeah. The discussion people are having are, oh, Dane Cook stole this joke from, or these couple of jokes, like this uh, naming your child a weird name bit from Louis C.K. And uh, then you see the two jokes, and it's like, yeah, uh, the setup is the same because that's a pretty basic setup. Name yeah. your name your kid something weird, and, and I guarantee was, neither of them were the first to come up with that premise or do that. And they weren't stage. because Steve Martin did it in the seventies, yeah. and nobody accuses is, Louis C.K. <laughs> of stealing from from Steve Martin. My but, favorite joke theft accusation ever was Bill Maher accused The Onion of ripping off a joke from his stand-up special, but he did not realize that they were actually republishing an article that they had published before his stand-up special had come out. Which is just too beautiful. It's like actually, you stole it from them. That's <laughs> <laughs> like that's rich. Not, it's so good. Yeah, it's um, I, I I am amazed at the amount of people in and uh, this particularly in comedy who are seemingly unaware of parallel thought. But that doesn't give any sort of. I'm not giving any leeway to people who don't do comedy who don't understand parallel thought. They don't know the phrase parallel thought, right. but they know that they have thought of something someone else has thought of. Like, they know how yeah. many times they've been watching a show or saw some new product and said, I was just thinking that. Right. I was just thinking yeah. about a product like that. You know that that exists. Yeah, so I mean, any time you... you ever have a topical joke come to your mind, just search it on Twitter, and 99% of the time, somebody else already made it. It's just, uh, yeah, yeah, it happens. It happens to me constantly. <laughs> like I always <laughs> think I write something and I'm like, yeah, this is new. And then I'm, I just happen to write after that. See, especially if it's something that is, like you said, topical and going on right now. I mean, there are a hundred comics who are, if they're live tweeting some event, who are going to have the same comment about yeah. something that happened. And they didn't see that other people wrote it because they were busy writing it. Exactly. So get busy writing is probably exactly. the main thing to learn from there. It's just yeah. Know, I mean, it, if your joke got stolen, it probably wasn't that original of a joke in the first place. That like, too. Yeah. You know, um, if, or if somebody parallel thought, if you guys came up with the same joke at the same time, it's like, well, come up with stuff that other people aren't also thinking of. That's the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing that makes it witty and and good craftsmanship. Yeah. And uh, and I think a lot of people miss that in all these discussions. But the stuff with Amy Schumer, it's like. A lot of the people, the, the, there was one comic who accused her, and then that comic completely walked back those statements. Yeah. I mean, that, that one especially is just like, that's not about comedy. She has a target on her back. A lot of it's misogyny. You know, a lot of it's political. A lot of it's, uh, yeah. And yeah. people are like, no comics material could stand up to the kind of scrutiny where people are going line by line and then trying to find anything that any other comedian has ever done that is similar to make damning looking YouTube videos. It's like literally any comic like Carlin prior, you find, go through their stuff. You will find more blatant uh, examples of joke theft than anything Amy Schumer has done. Yeah. And I think also when you think about like people editing videos together, I've done some videos. It's not something that takes two minutes to put together. Yeah. That's a lot of time that they put into something as silly as that. Yeah, people have a lot of free time on their hands, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's, and it's also funny to me when somebody said, uh, I saw somebody 
talking about one of the late night uh, hosts and saying, oh, so-and-so Conan or whoever did that joke last night. And then somebody commented to them, yeah, they steal from each other all the time. <laughs> like, you don't know what their rooms like, are like yeah, when they're creating yeah. their shows because the last thing they are able to do is watch everyone else's yeah, show. Yeah, you think late night writers are watching the other late night shows? <laughs> you think they like they don't even watch their own shows? Right, they're so busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're so incredibly busy trying to work on that show. They don't sit down and be like, what's Fallon up to tonight? Yeah, and then exactly. With their pen and their pad next to them, uh, <laughs> so they can repurpose jokes the next day that are a day old stories. Like that's not happening. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about what happened a day every night. <laughs> it's just absurd. But that's also I can understand uh, the average person not knowing how much sure. work uh, they're doing in the on those shows. But people, they're doing a lot of work. They're not oh, Conan. Yeah. Conan's not watching Jimmy Kimmel. No, he's not. <laughs> and taking his jokes. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and sometimes, like, uh, just a month or so ago, uh, Conan made some joke a week or two after an SNL bit that had a, that was just basically the same joke. It wasn't word for word the same. It clearly wasn't stolen. And a bunch of people commented on, uh, oh, I guess you saw that SNL sketch, too. And it's like, um, he used Probably the word not. there. <laughs> you yeah. know, like... It's, yeah, it's not, Conan's not stealing jokes from SNL. Like what? Like it? <laughs> if he was doing something so blatant, like the downside of getting caught and right. is so much. Like you think that he wants to rip off other people? Like he's been a full time comedy writer for longer than most of the people making accusations have been alive. Right. It's like give me a break. Exactly. Conan doesn't also, need to steal jokes. Right, exactly. But then also on top of that, it's it's not hard to imagine that Conan could have come up former SNL writer Conan O'Brien could not have come up with a similar joke as a current SNL writer yeah exactly you know it's like the same kind of style of comedy that's why they both work there (laughs) yeah yeah, of course he he can come up with that joke um enough about uh stealing jokes let's talk a little bit more about what split cider website has done for your life like what are things that you have learned uh now that you have uh, been at it for so long oh boy <laughs> um that's a tough question i don't know uh, well, i'll be honest break it uh, down uh, yeah sure uh from specifically from learning about comedy and have you has uh writing for this and, and editing for this website helped you as a comedian as a as a improviser um i don't know if it's connected much with my what i do on stage at ucb i think what it's done is just teach me a lot about comedy that i wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise you know because i basically have to be like a voracious consumer of comedy i have to kind of know what shows are coming out what stand-ups are kind of rising who might be getting comedy central half hours this year what Mm. you know what comedy scenes are like in various places so that's a different sort of impact on you than it growing your comedy brain per se in a direct way it's probably yeah, I mean, growing it, your I'm comedy sure brain indirectly, indirectly yeah just like being yeah. exposed to all comedy all you know so much comedy all the time i'm sure right has an influence when i'm on stage but i'm not like reading something and being like aha that is a rule i will <laughs> take with me to the stage you know it's like just, it feels very disconnected especially because mm-hmm. a lot of most of what we cover is not improv you know we cover it's mostly tv shows and, mm-hmm. and podcasts and, and stuff um which feels more disconnected from improv and, mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it's just, it's been 
nice to just to feel like I, I've got a handle on on so much of the comedy world, you know, and just like, oh yeah, I know uh, the folks who are hot right now in LA and in in New York, and I know you know the Austin scene and the New Orleans scenes are really booming right now, and Denver has this great comedy renaissance happening. It's just like neat to feel like like aware of all this cool stuff that's happening all over the mm. place and all these cool shows and and you know learning about young comics. And then watching them get famous, you know, I've been running the site for seven years, so I've seen, you know, we interviewed Pete Davidson, ran Pete Davidson's first major interview the day he auditioned for SNL. Oh, wow. And it's like, stuff like that is just cool to be like, oh yeah, this is just like a <laughs> teenage stand-up at the cellar that we noticed and thought was, was promising, and then watch him become, you know, an SNL cast member and, and this famous guy. It's fun to like watch the arc of people's careers through that lens over, oh, yeah. over a longer timeline. Yeah, so you, it's, I guess it's gratifying for you in a different way. Um, for me, I'm, I'm going to your website as a comedy nerd and a student, but though, you know, you are putting a product together and though you're still learning stuff, uh, it's, it's not the active thing that's going through your mind. It's more just the experience of what you get to see. Yeah. All yeah. I together. mean, my day to day work is still much more connected to the work I was doing at Gawker than anything I do at UCB. You know, it definitely helps to know comedy for, from a performer's perspective to do the job, but honestly, I don't think it's necessary. I think just oh, running, running a website is is a pretty specific job, and, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. like kind of knowing the ins and outs of how online publishing works, uh, I think, is is the, the most important part of it, you know? Like, yeah. Knowing how to run a site of any subject is is more beneficial than anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> how has the uh, comedy brain side of you helped you though in, in writing pieces? Is it, uh, because I mean, it isn't that you all really write a lot of instructional things, but I do constantly go back to that improv babble article that you wrote that, uh, mm -hmm. that you all put together that, uh, put to put together all these different thoughts from the Chicago school of uh, improv and the UCB or New York school of improv. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it, what it helps is that I, I can smell bullshit in pitches. You know, if somebody sends <laughs> me a pitch, I'm just like, you have no fucking clue what you're talking about, man. Then it's easy for me to, to shut that down and not run something stupid. And that I, that will be incorrect for, you know, mm -hmm. I think that it allows me to be trustworthy to other performers. If they're reading the site, they know that I, you know, I know enough that I'm that the stuff that we're running is coming from a place that's that's real and truthful and and actually related to what's happening, as opposed to you know a, a bomb thrower or somebody who just wants to make a name for themselves or or mm -hmm. just like make some bold claims that aren't backed up by facts. You know. Oh gosh, yeah, and I, as a person who has a degree in journalism i really appreciate that you're doing that because <laughs> that just seems few and far between in a lot of uh, a lot of the world of news these days it just seems like a lot of uncorroborated things are getting yeah. out there uh yeah, and things that can't get backed up so yep. and from your perspective getting to see all these different things going on in the comedy world have you noticed a big boom i mean the it seems like the comedy boom has been steadily increasing over the last decade um you have a good perspective of that since you're uh, putting together a site that's talking about comedy how have you seen it grow or do, do you do you see it sort of starting to slow down or is it 
you know, the what's the pace on that that comedy boom that's been going on for so long? Yeah, um, I think it's all tied to the number of increased number of outlets there are for comedians. You know, from Twitter to uh, YouTube to podcasts to more and more cable networks to places like streaming services like CISO mm-hmm. or Go90. There's just there's just exponentially more places to get paid to do comedy uh, than there were 10 years ago or even right. five years ago. Um, and I think that's the boom isn't. Yeah, that's what the boom is. You know, it's just like there's it's more visible because there's more more jobs and so mm-hmm. more people can film and be comedians. And then that is a virtuous cycle where people will see all this comedy and be like, man, I, I want to try this. And, and it's awesome. I mean, I think because it's so tied to that, if it turns out that it's unsustainable and not all of these cable networks can sustain paying for all these shows that not a ton of people are watching or people aren't paying for, you know, streaming services or, or whatever else, then that's going to be what, changes things but Mm -hmm. from my perspective it seems like it's pretty healthy i don't think it can be too much bigger like you know netflix alone is buying so many shows between like just netflix and hulu there's so much stuff and yeah all the cable networks are all trying to turn into mini netflixes and hulus and and i think it's going to be really interesting to watch what happens with the unbundling of cable and Mm -hmm. if these networks you know like a true tv um or a TV land, which is branching out more into comedy. Mm-hmm. If when if it gets to a point where people have to pay for specific channels, if these channels that are kind of just part of cable packages can continue to sustain all this content, you know, like yeah, will people be willing to pay for a network that does not have a strong comedy brand? All right, and if not, will a network be able to build that brand without? carriage fees and and the current cable setup you know because you know a true tv it's a turner network so obviously they have a ton of money and a big mm-hmm. corporate uh parent but they completely have made a huge pivot into comedy and mm-hmm. they're able to do that because people just get the channel and there's no barrier to entry for people watching those shows you know if you have cable but if it gets to a point where it's all just apps and services <laughs> that you have to pay for piecemeals like how does that work and I think right. that's going to be the interesting thing to watch. That's a that's a good take. That's a good that's good insight. Do you people a few years, several years ago now were saying that the uh, there's going to be some comedy bubble burst because that's just well, that happened in the 80s at some point and it happened in the late 90s at some point. Um, and uh, Pat Oswalt was somebody who I think was saying it, and then uh, years ago was saying, yeah, that that bubble never burst. Like it just seems to be going and going. Yeah. And I, I think it's tough to compare the two. I don't even think we're in a bubble right now. I think it's right. The eighties was, you know, a lot of those comics were bad, you know, like there was, I think that the difference now is that then it was like a million comedians all trying to be mainstream and get network sitcoms and all kind of mm-hmm. generic shitty in front of a brick wall stand up right but now it's like it's the opposite it's the boom is there's every different type of comedian and comedy you could imagine and because mm-hmm. there's so many outlets that it can find its audience that's what's so cool is this yeah. is for the first time like weird comedy can find a very specific small audience and be sustainable and that's what's new and that's not a bubble Right. Like that's just a new way that comedy is consumed. That's not just like networks wanting 
50 new Tim Allens, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, that's a very good point because that is what it was back in the 80s was network saying, oh, there are a couple of stand-up comedians who got huge all of a sudden. Let's just find some stand-ups and just yeah. give them stuff. And yeah, exactly. now people are being a little bit savvier about who's actually ready to lead a project. Who can right. actually pitch? And a there's project. just way more. You can. There's a lot more between doing stand-up at Catch and being on ABC. Right. Uh, like it was in the '80s, there was like a, it, that was a big jump. But now you have an opportunity as a comedian or a performer to do so many different things to prove that you are ready. It's like, mm -hmm. oh well, you have three years of Twitter jokes that are all really funny, or look at this web series you made that's really great, or you did, you know, you did projects with Above Average or Funny or Die or College Humor, or you know, there's just so many steps. There's right. so many different ways that you can kind of show who you are and what you can do. That's not just stand up. Or network sitcom. There's, right. there's just this huge uh, gradient in between those things now that didn't exist in the '80s. Yeah, that's a that's a very good very good point. Well, I feel like we've uh, gotten towards the end here, and uh, this is the time where we like to create something with the guest. Uh, I think something that might be interesting to create is uh, if there was another site that. Uh, could be a comedy site what would it be or maybe uh, a network if we we're going to create a one of those sort of services for comedy what could what could that be anything that's uh, striking your interest there oh boy um, you have another idea that might be better let me think asking me to give you all my business my business plan ideas i'm trying to steal my, well. <laughs> my future business ideas <laughs> uh, let's see i mean it's it's cool there's 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 definitely room. I think that streaming services are definitely going to be like the cool thing in the next few years. I think there's going to be a lot of cool new comedy focused streaming services. And I really hope that that becomes like a new way for people to, to get stuff out there and to watch comedy. So I feel like, uh, you know, a, a comedy streaming service that, um, I don't know, got to think of an angle, right? Can't just be a generic yeah. comedy. What if it was, uh, I'm cause since I'm from the Southeast and I know there are a lot of good, comics down in the southeast and obviously a lot of people out of atlanta are getting attention but uh, where i'm from uh, in south carolina there are a lot of great comics who i think deserve attention so if we we're gonna do some sort of service an app or something that was for comedy out of, out of the southeast what sort of thing should somebody if they're trying to create that service be looking for so that it does in, end up being sustainable like what what are the pitfalls that you've seen people maybe step into? I think you got to have an angle. You got to have a, you know, you, you can't just be generic and, and overly broad. I think mm -hmm. that, I think that t doing a Southern one would be cool. Like, you know, in Atlanta base, it's like all Southern talent, uh, homegrown talent. You could have live, live tape stuff from uh, Atlanta clubs and then have that talent make stuff shot in and around the South. You know, I think that would be a really cool. And that's, that's makes it distinct. It makes it, it's like, Oh, that's not just, generic comedy service it is this is the south the southern comedy you know it's got its own voice its own mm -hmm. flavor i think that's really cool yeah uh split cider is a great name because it it you know it has like insider in there but it's also side splitting you know so it like makes you think <laughs> of comedy um how did you come up with that name oh god i didn't even come up with it uh i part i partnered with a website called the all uh mm -hmm. they do kind of the business stuff so they do ad sales and tech uh, and I do editorial and uh, Alex Balk, who was actually a Gawker editor when I was at Gizmodo. So we worked together back at Gawker. 
it's one of the founders, and we were just brainstorming names, and I am terrible at coming up with names. So luckily, <laughs> he came up with that, and the URL was available, which was a big selling point because almost no .com URLs uh, are available, which is why so many websites have nonsense fake words oh. uh, like split cider. Okay. So you can't have like the joke the you know the joke uh, that's not even what we would do it's like any any normal word.com is taken and cost $15,000 <laughs> to buy. <laughs> right. Yeah, so but yeah, I can't take credit for Splitsider the name unfortunately. <laughs> it is still a cool name. But so <laughs> if we're trying to name this uh southeastern comedy service app uh we so we wouldn't be able to get something like uh southeastern comedy cuz that's probably taken dot com probably. is probably taken and yeah, i mean here's maybe that's too generic something, something that is tied to you know southern culture what well, is there like some specific some saying or or uh, sweet tea i think hey. is one thing uh uh southern accent so you can think of like twang but i wouldn't want to say twangy comedy or something like that because then it sounds like it's going to be hee-haw yeah. um <laughs> a sweet tea comedy yeah um <laughs> Um, what's something else that's, but that's, that's the process of trying to come up with these sort of things is saying like, what is your purpose and, yeah. uh, you know, what are you trying to connect with? And then also yeah. what isn't whack? Right. Exactly. <laughs> what isn't a terrible Basically name? you write down 50 ideas and you hate all of them and you just pick the one that makes you least embarrassed to say out loud. I think <laughs> is how naming things generally works. Like which one will humiliate me the least over a long time period? <laughs> I'm gonna stick with sweet tea comedy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I like it. Yeah, see, it's it's straightforward. You get it. It's not too clever for its own good. <laughs> awesome. There it is. Thanks so much <laughs> for being on the podcast, Adam. All right. This thanks great. for having me, Jason. This is oh, fun. Really great chat in there. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. We fit in some talk about improv, but also starting your own thing. Doesn't have to be a website. It could be anything that you start. And I think you can learn a lot from what Adam was saying about how to go about doing that check out their website splitsider.com also follow them on social media at splitsider you can follow us on facebook and twitter at there it is pod and me on twitter at jason far jokes well that's it for this episode we hope to see you next week until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by neil brooks the rap was written and performed by nick acevedo the logo for there it is was created by jeff prater the There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.